KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. If you enjoy listening to the show, I'd like to ask a favor. Recommend it to one friend. That's it. I'm not asking for money or for you to write a review. Just tell someone who loves movies to take a listen. I'd greatly appreciate your help in building an audience for the show. Today, I'm also trying something new, doing a brief review of a new film at the top of the show and then going to the main topic, which today is H.P. Lovecraft. But first, I have a few words about Mile 22. Father child one, we got motorcycles on our ass. I need a new vehicle ASAP. On your left! This is an Overwatch operation. Our team is engaged in a higher form of patriotism. It's not a military operation. The goal is to complete the mission at any cost. I wish they had a punching bag outside the theater because when I left the press screening, I wanted to hit something. I'm an action junkie. I love nothing more than the adrenaline rush from the pure kinetic energy you get in a good action film. But I felt no adrenaline, only anger seething through my veins after watching Mile 22. Although Mark Wahlberg is billed as the star, it's Iko Uwais I came to see. He's the brilliant action star of the two Indonesian raid movies. For Mile 22, he performed and choreographed fight scenes. Then director Peter Berg threw all the footage in a blender and spit out a sludge that doesn't allow you to appreciate any of the flavors of the action. Overcutting is what you do when you have a talentless clod that you have to make look good. Uwais needs no such help. You just put him on screen and let him go. You can tell that the fight choreography is clever, but the way it's shot and cut, you could have had Betty White doing the fights, and she would have looked good because most of the shots are mere seconds or frames long, so all you'd have to do is one motion per shot. But I do have a soft spot for Berg because he directed Very Bad Things, which is one of my all-time favorite films. And he delivered the wildly fun actioner The Rundown with The Rock. But then he started to make more serious films, and his action style became derivative of the fast-cut Bourne movies. But fast-cutting does not equal heightened tension or even excitement. Just like making Wahlberg's character talk fast doesn't necessarily make him smart. Feeling calm, Alice? Not even a little. Are you? I'm totally calm. That's because you're mentally unstable. Thank you. After seeing this film, I had to run home and watch Raid Redemption as a palate cleanser. Maybe Mile 22 is trying to reflect Wahlberg's ADHD character or the chaotic state of the world. Or maybe Berg got paid by the cut. But whatever's behind this mindlessly frenetic style, it destroys what could have been a lean, mean political thriller about getting an asset a mere 22 miles from an embassy to a plane. Okay, now that I got that off my chest, I can move on to something that brings me great joy, despite the fact it's all about fear, darkness, and the unknown. 
That's right. I'm talking about the works of H.P. Lovecraft. August 20th will mark the 128th anniversary of Lovecraft's birth. But how did this man, who was born in Providence, Rhode Island, come to create a body of horror fiction that continues to this day to influence the public consciousness and other artists? Lovecraft and his creation, The Tentacle Cthulhu, even inspired my haunted house a couple years ago. So today, I'm dedicating the podcast to H.P. Lovecraft by interviewing Mike Dallager, a man with a passion project to create a rock opera from Lovecraft's Dreams in the Witch House. Universe born from my womb. What giveth life shall seal your doom. Before we discuss what this project is all about and talk about some of the best Lovecraft film adaptations and Lovecraft adjacent films, I asked Gallagher how he first got hooked on Lovecraft. Yeah, uh, well, we'd have to press rewind all the way to uh, like the mid-1980s. I was one of those guys that had a few friends and we'd play Dungeons and Dragons on the weekend. And uh, I remember uh, I, I would buy this magazine called White Dwarf. And uh, flipping through the pages, I kept seeing this thing called Call of Cthulhu. And it was another role-playing game, sort of like the, the competition to Dungeons & Dragons. I was always interested in what I saw in the ad, but at the same time, you know, trench coats and like uh, a lantern just didn't quite pass muster for my, uh, you know, magicians and uh, dragons and uh, all of that stuff. So... It didn't happen until much later when I got cast in a uh, silent movie adaptation of The Call of Cthulhu. And uh, I ap- actually submitted to the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society's first film, which was an adaptation of The Call of Cthulhu. And that was in 2004. And I, I submitted for uh, Deranged Swamp Folk and got called in for uh, one of the sailors who is uh, who discovers... A relay um, as it has risen from the sea, and uh, I was the lucky sailor who uh, released Cthulhu in that silent movie. So uh, as I was on that set, uh, I thought, wow, this this writer sounds familiar. What is this? And as I was hanging out with all the other nerds, I put two and two together and realized, oh my gosh, I've, I've loved this guy's works my entire life um, because it really tied into uh, Alien by Ridley Scott, Dan O'Bannon screenplay, Ronald Shusett. Dan O'Bannon, huge Lovecraft fan, and John Carpenter's The Thing, and I, I just adore those movies, and they are very Lovecraftian. So uh, that's uh, that's where I, I I go back as far as the mid '80s to that White Dwarf magazine when I saw The Call of Cthulhu in that ad. For people who may not be familiar with H.P. Lovecraft, I'm sure most people have like heard his name and heard of Cthulhu and things like that. Give us a little kind of summary of who he was and, uh, you know, he was writing, he was born in 1890, so this is a while ago and kind of a very different time. But give us a little kind of snapshot of who he was. He's a fascinating man, but he wrote weird fiction in the 20s and 30s. And he didn't live that long. He, uh, he died in uh, 1937. Um, in his uh, short lifetime, he wrote for Weird Tales magazine, and he contributed short horror stories. He was uh, not a, a blood descendant of Edgar Allan Poe, but a mood descendant of Edgar Allan Poe in terms of that type of horror narration. So 
there was Poe, and then there was Lovecraft, and after Lovecraft, you could say there was Stephen King, who uh, has mentioned that Lovecraft is the greatest practitioner of American horror ever. He was an only child. If we dig a little deeper, um, his father uh, was uh, sent to a, a mental institution when he was very young, so he was raised by a single mother. Uh, I can't recall what happened to his mom, but he ended up being raised by his aunts after uh, something happened to his mother. So only child in Providence, Rhode Island, and uh, a fan of all of the uh, horror stories that his father passed on to him when he was growing up. So he uh, ultimately became this this writer who uh, lived a very poor lifestyle, wasn't getting paid much money for submissions to Weird Tales magazine. But he did end up moving to New York, and he wrote some stories while he was living in New York. New York freaked him out because of uh, all of the uh, immigrants, Irish, Italian, Polish. Um, So Providence was was a different world from New York. Um, But he moved there after he got married to his Jewish wife. And that marriage didn't last very long. Uh, She ended up moving to Chicago for work, and Lovecraft found himself returning to Providence. That's probably when his uh, sort of glory years of his most famous titles were, uh, were being written, such as At the Mountains of Madness, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, and something that I'm very dear to, a uh, story, uh, Dreams in the Witch House. Now, you mentioned he's kind of a kindred soul to Edgar Allan Poe, but both of these writers, they were writing in the horror genre, and neither one of them really had much popularity and success and critical acclaim during their own lifetime. Right. That's, that's true. They, they, they lived hand-to-mouth. Uh, there was, they were not rock and roll stars during their lives. They are now, um, but that's, uh, that's, that's definitely uh, um, a fact. No recognition, no money, <laughs> just a lot of uh, suffering through their art and then they pass, and then uh, some, the lightning strikes and something happens. And what do you think it is about his stories that has so captured people's imaginations? Because these books haven't really kind of faded away. They've only kind of gotten stronger in the public consciousness and in pop culture. But what do you think it is about his work that really hooks people? This is going to sound negative, but I find his uh, style of writing very dense just imagine chewing um, something that's very rich in nutrients, but the flavor isn't evident right from the get-go, and it's extremely chewy. Like, it takes a really long time to activate that flavor, and some some people who want a more instantaneous connection to the material might go, Ugh, I don't like this. What happened to me was uh, I ended up getting hired by the guys who run the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, which is a business in Glendale, California. They made that movie, the silent film adaptation of Call of Cthulhu. And because of that experience, I really immersed myself in his works because I felt like if I'm going to work for these guys, I got to know this material and I got to push my way through it. Um, And that's when a glory of riches revealed itself. So it's very, very difficult to describe his prose style of writing, other than if you can imagine someone who likes to pile on the adjectives, 
uh, before he gets to the action. There's a lot of elaborative explanation from a first-person standpoint in his works. So I think a lot of people who create art themselves are willing to take that time to, to, to immerse themselves. I can read and read and reread, and I always discover something new between those adjectives, which is a weird way to put it. It's like it's, it's not very simplistic horror. No, you really got to peel back layers. Um, I, I really feel like you're, it's, it's, a, it's a ticket into this man, this writer's dreams and his mind. And that's a privilege. And it also seems to be that a lot of what the horror has to do with is this sense of the unknown. It's not, it's not readily something from the real world, like somebody who comes to kill you, you know, or to beat you up or something. It seems to really tap into this sense of dread of things that you really don't know or understand and yeah. that that's where the terror comes from. Yeah, that's a, a great statement. Uh, really, at, at the root of it, I think, is uh, he was the first horror writer to sort of create a new brand. It's called Cosmic Horror. I don't want to say it's the dawn of science fiction, but it's probably the dawn of when horror and sci-fi collided was through H.P. Lovecraft. In terms of the horror being sort of an Earth-based element, his brand of horror really uh, alludes to uh, an indifferent universe, a universe that doesn't care about us. We're insignificant and a universe that's full of much greater horrors than we're aware of. And so his, his protagonist characters are always unearthing or, or obsessed individuals who discover something through their study of knowledge that already exists or science that is being discovered and seeing things that most people don't see. So that's that's what's fascinating about what he wrote is uh, I remember hearing someplace or reading someplace that he was a frustrated, uh, you know, he wanted to be an astronomer, uh, but he didn't have the math skills to do it. So this is how he, he uh, ended up exploring that realm is sort of still attending these very scholarly discussions, presentations at universities, and then integrating that knowledge with dreams he had at night. So it's very visionary. But you're absolutely correct, Beth. Like, uh, it's Fear of the Unknown is the name of the documentary that's based on his life. Um, Because that's, there's a famous quote that he has, uh, the greatest, I'm going to paraphrase and butcher it, but... uh, it's it's about fear and that being uh, fear of the unknown being the, the greatest fear of man. One of the things that can be problematic about H.P. Lovecraft is that as a person, uh, things have emerged that depict him as racist or homophobic. And I just had the opportunity to read Alan Moore's introduction to this new gorgeous, thick, uh, (laughs) annotated uh, (laughs) H.P. Lovecraft volume that I haven't had a chance to delve through yet, but I I did get through the introduction. But he did a really nice job, I thought, of putting that into a context that kind of helps you understand where his, like, sense of horror came from. Because he points out, he said that, you know— here was this person who was white, Protestant, middle class, heterosexual, at a time when you mentioned, you know, he he went to New York and that 
he was this person who feared so many things yeah. from so much change coming at his life that you know some of the that putting it into this context of who he was where he was living and how that kind of played into his art um kind of helps you understand it if not you know condone what he was like yeah uh the- if if you go on social media and someone bring you know the the fan pages for Lovecraft or when somebody pops in there and drops one of these you know he was a racist bombs and all of a sudden you've got the, the, like a, a very um, sort of nerdy discussion about Lovecraft where its reverence towards him takes a, a left turn and goes into this other territory I see that all the time and there is uh, that element is out there and it's. It, the only thing I can say about it is if you see through the lens of 2018 and you pass judgment on people from the past who lived in a completely different world, it's very easy to criticize someone for someone writing in the manner that they wrote. And I'll use this one story as an example. Um, I'm a person of color. I'm I'm a half-breed. My, my father's from Minnesota, and he's of Norwegian-Swedish descent. My mother's from the Philippines. And they met during the Vietnam War in a time when, you know, my dad's ship was going into the port in Olongapo, and the world was crumbling. It was the late 60s. And they fell in love, and they had me. In the 60s, that wasn't seen as uh, something that uh, should be done throughout much of the United States. And I can't criticize that. That's how it was just as I can't criticize Lovecraft for being who he was at the time he, he grew up. So this is always a, a, a sensitive topic because uh, if, if we're to uh, condemn the man's works because of who he was or what's, what is presumed of how he was, I, I, I can't sit and interview the guy right now. You know, he can't protect himself and say, look, I didn't know the world was going to be this cool in 2018. So it's interesting. Uh, um, I'll have to check out that Alan Moore write-up because it it sounds like he he gives it uh, a bit of a a, a softer edge um, in explaining those elements. Well, and it's, like I said, it's, you know, understanding a context. And, you know, what, what interests me is that, you know, here's this person who may have been experiencing this very personal fear of unknown things to him in a very real sense of, you know, his own personal life, trying to express those in an artistic and creative way. And how does that manifest itself? And, you know, he has created some of the, you know, best literary horror of his time. And, you know, there has to be a source for where that's coming from. Yeah, uh, the, there's a story called The Horror at Red Hook, and Red Hook's in New York, and it's all about the immigrants uh, and the fear of uh, what happens in a, a major city when, you know, a segment of society is uh, all of, you know, I live in up in uh, North Hollywood, and, you know, Glendale is known as Little Armenia now. Is that supposed to make me afraid to go to Glendale? No, not at all. I'm, If anything, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. Los Angeles being the melting pot it is. But yeah, Lovecraft must have felt the same when he moved to New York and all of a sudden he was exposed to not just the the foreigners but how each each nationality interacted with each other. Like I don't think the Irish and the Italians got along. 
you know, in, in New York, although, even though they were both Catholic, for example. If, if we take one of his works, that's clearly a, a statement on something that I, I feel a, a connection to being who I am, my, my dad being a, a Navy man and my mother being from uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, the Shadow Over Innsmouth is a perfect example. It's about people in a fishing village who travel the seven seas and end up in the South Pacific and coming across a, sort of an island full of bug-eyed fish-looking people and coming home and all of a sudden you've got uh, the, uh, the residents of Innsmouth, um, you know, returning to the ocean as they begin to uh, transition to uh, fish creatures. So what, what does that say about uh, mixing of the races, if, if we're to examine it a little bit? As you say, like art, this is how this man potentially dealt with his fears as he put it down on a piece of paper and wrote these fantastical stories. Now, as you delved into his work, you were inspired to tackle a personal project. So explain you are in the midst of something that may take you many years to accomplish. <laughs> sure. So uh, what, what is this project that you've begun? Yeah, um, we're about coming up on five years into it, um, uh, I produced a rock opera adaptation of The Dreams in the Witch House. That story was written in 1932, right during the sort of the peak of, of, of Lovecraft's um, most celebrated stories, in a sense, uh, with At the Mountains of Madness, uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth, uh, and Dreams in the Witch House. They're all right in that, that that's sort of considered Lovecraft's peak. Um, but uh, I picked up this story um, at the recommendation of one of my uh, collaborators, Andrew Lehman, at the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, um, because I wanted to know a little bit more about this character in the Lovecraft mythos called the Black Pharaoh. Um, and the Black Pharaoh is also Nyarlathotep and also known as the Crawling Chaos. So it's a mythos character who has three names. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so Andrew said, give uh, Dreams in the Witch House a shot. It's not known as Lovecraft's, one of Lovecraft's stronger stories. In fact, it's criticized for being uh, sort of a fractious uh, hodgepodge of ideas. Um, S.T. Joshi uh, in the foreword to the story and in, in the, what is it, the, the Penguin publishing uh, book really describes it well. Um, from from a, the standpoint of of where Lovecraft's works, uh, where it sits in sort of the lineage of, of Lovecraft's greater works, um, but I found it fascinating because it delves into witchcraft and combines witchcraft and folklore with advanced mathematics, and it's about an obsessed student, much like Reanimator with a medical student, who uncovers an indescribable horror. And in the case of Dreams in the Witch House, it's through his dreams. And whether or not his dreams are actual reality or not, if they're actually taking place, is up for the uh, reader's interpretation. Um, but I was very moved once I started reading this story because all of a sudden I imagined it being like a Sweeney Todd type of show. I was a stage actor for 15 years, was on Broadway for a while, Jesus Christ Superstar, toured in all of these big musicals. And I thought, 
I've never seen a horror musical that's sort of replicated Sweeney Todd's horror. Um, and so I was like, this is a perfect candidate for that. And so I, I ended up collaborating some with some uh, producers of heavy metal in Sweden that I had worked with previously when I lived over there. And we went track by track and we collaborated and strategized on how we could realize this story into a rock opera that could exist on a double LP or all of these modern day music formats as well, streaming, download. So we did it. We, it took about 18 months and uh, over 50 individuals working on it in terms of musicians and uh, singers. And it's a, it's a monster project. And it continues to, in much, uh, in a very Lovecraftian fashion, sort of a new tentacle grows out, and <laughs> and, uh, and uh, voila, we've got uh, more to the Dreams in the Witch House rock opera brand product line. So uh, it's uh, it's definitely a passion project. We're five years into it. Uh, this October will be five years since the release of our concept album. So at this point. What you have is an is a audio version is an yes. audio version of this rock opera, and you still have dreams to develop it beyond that into potentially a film or play. I outed myself uh, because uh, the original intention, very very from the very beginning, was this inspiration of seeing it on stage. Naturally, that's where my head goes because of my experience in theater, and also when you set out to do something, and the business of entertainment itself is continually evolving, you don't really see where where you might land at some point. So when we got through the stay, the phase of producing the concept album, and it was released and received extremely well, we've got all five-star ratings on iTunes, Amazon. Uh, we've had several reviews, Fangoria, all supportive. All of our fans love it. Um, it's very, it's big. It's not campy. Uh, it's if you can imagine uh, merging Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ Superstar, that that type of quality and, and bombast with uh, a horror story. Um, that's what we set out to do. And so right from almost the get go, I realized, oh, this if, if the intention is to put this on Broadway, that's going to be that's going to take a super, super long time. Just finding out that the the territorial territorial nature of how theaters on Broadway decide what shows are going to be given a shot at it requires a two million dollar budget just to put it on, on, into a a position where it can be pitched to play on one of those stages. So I I realize I live in Los Angeles. I I can't really make that pursuit. What I can do is start to delve into the independent film waters. And uh, things feel very promising. When you decided that you wanted this to be a rock opera, what did you think about that format lent itself to Lovecraft in this story? I mean, Mm -hmm. sound is such a key part of horror, uh, whether it's music or sound effects, however you want to call it. So how did you kind of... um, like envision this score because not all of its songs, some of it's just music. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did you? What did you think lent itself to Lovecraft about this format? Well, I felt like this was the perfect story to adapt into a rock opera because 
the uh, protagonist character, Walter Gilman, is an obsessed mathematics genius who uh, challenges all his professors. And through enormous concentration, as he's working out these, these equations and formula, he starts to hear sounds from beyond. So he's opening the portal to alternate dimensions through his ears at first. So that's, he hears things. When I read uh, this specific passage in the story about cacophonous sounds and mindless pipes and chanting, I just was, just, I, it, it took me to hard rock immediately because the, the nature of sound itself is, uh, you know, you're talking about waveforms, you're talking about uh, dynamics and layers and frequencies, and there's, our human ear doesn't hear everything that actually exists out there. What better way to explore those themes than through music? Um, and I think Lovecraft's the perfect vessel for that because uh, it is very transcendent, um, the work. And in terms of horror you, and rock, you can break a lot of cinematic rules just based off the fact that it's a horror movie. Just add to that, it's a rock opera. Rock is all about breaking rules. The story itself of Dreams in the Witch House is a fractious rule breaker by itself because who would merge witchcraft and math and advanced physics and mathematics uh, together. Does that sound like a horror story to you? I, I haven't, is there another horror movie out there where like the protagonist is a mathematics guy? Think, think Goodwill Hunting meets The Witch, you know? Maybe that should be part of my pitch next time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Now, you have some iconic people involved in this project. Uh, one of them is Barbara Steele. Yes, uh, she is an icon, and what a, what a treat. I, I contacted her a couple years ago, and it wasn't like I can just pick up the phone and call Barbara Steele, you know. So by living in, in Hollywood, I, I had some collaboration with someone who had recently worked with her, and so he, uh, he brought my project to her. Um, and I was very thankful for it. And as soon as she heard chants set to like hard rock metal, um, she was game. Sign after royal blood, uncover secrets and dream Come to truth with sorcery, now And then I sent her the lyrics and she said, oh, this is just wonderful. Um, and she's played many witches in her time. Um, and once I, I reached out to her and um, I said, oh, yes, Barbara, and also you'll be normally the, the character Azathoth is seen as a male. Um, and that just didn't interest me because Azathoth is uh, a nuclear chaos at the center of the universe who gives birth to planets. That has, Azathoth has to be a female. So I said... Barbara, you're going to provide the voice for the center of the universe. She responded, what, what aging star doesn't want to hear that she's been offered the voice of the center of the universe? Yes, I'm happy to do this, Michael. So she was in our, the studio, uh, in, in Studio City, um, and I had uh, Douglas Blair with me. He's the lead guitarist of Wasp, and he and I collaborated on this, this expansion track 
called Argo Navis, Heart of Darkness. And uh, we were lucky enough to get Barbara Steele to do the voice. And uh, we actually brought her up to the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival last year in Portland um, to premiere a, a lyric video that we produced. And it was just before a screening of uh, Black Sunday. So it was, it was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> You're a fan of Barbara Steele, I can tell. Oh, yes. Yes, she was in the terrifying Mario Bava film, Black Sunday. Yes. Yeah. If, if anybody has ever seen that film, she gets that Iron Maiden mask yep. hammered into her face. And quite <laughs> memorable. So if you were going in to pitch this to someone, is there a track you would play? Just if you that, could only play one. Yeah, that's that's the tricky nature of a rock opera is you kind of have to experience in it, it in its totality to really get it. That sounds like a lead into we're going to like play a song. Um, but just to get the concept tonally of what the 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 seriousness of this project is and uh, there there is a song, there is a track that sort of sets the tone and sets us off on this ad- adventure. The the rock opera concept album is called Dreams in the Witch House and uh, that would what you're what you're asking for would be track 2, Dreams in the Witch House. It gives a nice concise sort of trailer as to what uh, what the audience is in for throughout the rest of the journey. There's a haunted town full of whispered tales about a creaking house of mystery. This brooding moldy tomb with a crooked garret room hides a What do you remember of creating this particular track, of the kind of work that went into this? Yeah, what I do remember is, uh, geez, I had my musicians in Sweden. I had my vocalists in Hollywood. How do we act like we're all in the same space, combining our efforts, creating this? And through the magic of the Internet and Skype and uh, just never giving up, I was able to... to, um, actually find some success in a formula moving forward. So this is the this is the cast of the eventual movie or stage version all together in the beginning. Um, and we get to meet some characters and hear the tale of Keziah Mason, this witch that was condemned to hang in 1692, who now lingers throughout the witch house in Arkham, Massachusetts. Um, so through the glory of, of Skype sessions, and fantastic collaborators in Sweden. Um, uh, And I should name them uh, Chris Laney, Anders Ringman, Lennart Östlund. Um, Lennart Östlund is a giant in the Swedish recording industry. He worked with ABBA uh, in the 70s, um, and he was uh, an engineer at Polar Studios when Led Zeppelin recorded In Through the Outdoor. So, and he's a big nerd. Like uh, when when I found when he found out that uh, we were all going to collaborate on a uh, a horror rock opera, uh, he was fully on board because it's just sort of like a bucket bucket list item. So I couldn't have done it without them. Uh, my collaborators at the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. I was an employee of theirs while I was producing this monster project. Sean Branny, Andrew Lehman. Andrew Lehman's the voice of Frank Elwood in. Dreams in the Witch House. I'm the voice of uh, uh, Walter Gilman, the obsessed mathematics uh, genius. I'm not the proper age, but vocally, 
you know you can you can do that um so it, it's just like it was it was uh it was meant to be um and then uh, all of my previous uh collaborations with people in the industry uh elaine cashin is the voice of the witch and she was a cast member of cats on broadway i toured with her in jesus christ superstar um and when i hired her for this she had just finished uh we will rock you in las vegas so she's the voice of the witch. You you mentioned Arkham Asylum, and it reminded me that there are certain things that Lovecraft created that have just like become yeah. part of our popular. I mean, this notion of Arkham Asylum, Miskatonic University, right? Cthulhu are things that people may not know. Yeah, are connected to him, and yet they're like so embedded in our pop culture now. That's right. Yeah, just Arkham itself. I, I just. There's Arkham House Publishing, Arkham Sanitarium, DC Comics, Arkham Asylum. Um, I'm just like, what? What? And video games. And video games. These things. Exactly. And it's uh, it's fascinating that this guy hasn't had his mega moment yet. And I know a lot of fans and creators are worried about that. Like when when he does have his mega moment, um, will it spoil sort of the mystery of it all? as soon as somebody finds the proper formula to commercialize his works. Um, you know, you, if you compare him to somebody like Philip K. Dick, what a visionary writer he was. Blade Runner, Minority Report, list goes on and on uh, for Philip K. Dick. Uh, the Amazon series, Man in the High Castle. So why hasn't that happened to Lovecraft? But as we mentioned earlier, uh, there have been adaptations of his work, and we're going to talk a little bit about a few of the key ones that we would recommend people yeah. check out. And since I just saw the other night Reanimator, which is one of my <laughs> favorites, and speaking of musicals, it also had a musical incarnation. Yeah. That Stuart Gordon, who created the film in the 80s, created the uh, musical stage version so that good came too. out which I think I've seen somewhere in the na- neighborhood of like 30 or 40 times. You you saw it that many times. I went up there. We used to go up to L.A. We wow. followed them to Vegas. We followed them. Miguel and I went across the Atlantic to wow. see them at Edinburgh Fringe. Holy And I think smokes. we saw it three times alone just there. So you're a Jesse Merlin fan. A Jesse Merlin fan. I'm a fan yeah. of that. that He's thing. Professor Upham on the rock opera. Oh. Oh, very You'll nice. have to listen to that track. But yeah, I smuggled, I think it was 120 <laughs> uh, pom-poms for the Miskatonic University wow. across the Atlantic to bring and give out at the at the play. Because we, we printed the lyrics that. and we wanted everybody to sing along with the Miskatonic fight song. Fight on Miskatonic, push them back, push them back. Did you ever sit in the spray zone? Oh, yes. 
We for, I, I, for the actually, listeners, you should explain that. Like, what is the spray zone? Oh my gosh! I think it was technically. I think it was the splash zone. Splash zone. Okay. But yeah. uh, I, the it was first more like time, a spray though. <laughs> I actually, I actually did an NPR story. I convinced NPR to do a story on this. Oh my gosh! And um, when they first did it, it looked like you know um, Dexter's kill room right. because they exactly. wrapped everything in plastic. Yeah. You know, just like Saran wrap plastic. Yeah. But basically. It's a very gory play, mm-hmm. and if you sat in the first three rows, really more like the first five, but the first three rows, you were likely to get covered in blood and, and some potential other body parts. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and we proudly wore our, you know, <laughs> blood-stained shirts, and we even made – we made Miskatonic University lab coats with the logo embroidered on. Oh, my on. gosh. That's how much I love Reanimator. It was such a good adaptation of the movie. Yes. The musical. It's brilliant. Yeah. I even have a podcast all about it. So if you guys are listening to this, go check it out. And the thing about the stage version, and it was interesting because when the stage version first came out, it was about the same time they were trying to mount Spider-Man on Broadway. Right. And what struck me about the failure of Spider-Man and the success of Reanimator was that Spider-Man was trying to be a big-budget Hollywood movie on stage. Interesting. Which is difficult. I mean, yes. the stage has its limitations. Right. Whereas Reanimator, because Stuart Gordon comes from this theater background, yep. he understood if you embrace what theater can do and engage the audience in rounding out the details with their imagination as opposed to, like, we're going to try and do something so spectacular on the stage that you'll be blown away by the fact that we can recreate a Hollywood movie on the stage. Whereas what he did is more of a, you know, Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland thing and said, like, hey, we don't really have the money to do big budget effects, but we can be really clever. Yeah, you're going to come to the barn. About how this. we create the effects on stage. Wow. And by doing that, you're going to be so much more engaged in yeah. what we're doing. And it was brilliant. And it, the music was fabulous. And it was funny because I, I saw it so many times. And, like, there's some – I don't generally like musicals mm-hmm. at all. And usually <laughs> seeing a musical for a second time, I'm just going, like, that music's just grating on my nerves. And I couldn't understand why the music in that seemed so fresh every time I was listening to Amazing. it. And it's really very clever. Mark Netter did the score, and uh-huh. he just did a brilliant job. I agree. I agree. I only saw it twice, <laughs> um, <sighs> but I was pleasantly surprised. And to have gone and to have left that experience, my face hurting and my voice wearing out because of the belly laughs and the constant grin. And also the, are, are they doing this? Is this happening? Um, just Stuart Gordon's a, a master at uh, finding maximum value from a very e- economic mm-hmm. uh, starting point. Um, and it, it shows in his movie version of Reanimator. Yeah. Yeah, And the interesting thing is that when Reanimator was made as a film, which I, I think was 1980, the special effects were all practical at that point. Right. And that actually adapted very well to doing a stage play because he used a number right. of people that he had used on the film to do the special effects because the difference is, is on stage it has to be right the first time. Right. But 
when you're in a low-budget film, it sort of has to be right the first time as right. well because you don't have the ability to do endless takes usually. Nope. So the skill set kind of matched up very nicely. And, yeah. you know, basically on stage what you're doing is practical effects. Yeah, I agree. I, yeah, definitely. And you, you can see that in the movie. Um, he, uh, he really succeeds. Um, and that's uh, when, when, when you mentioned to me that you'd like to talk about Reanimator, that's, that's kind of, I think it came out in 85. Oh, 85, yes. Yeah. And I was a 14 year old at that time, um, early high school years. And I, I remember that I had been exposed prematurely to the Friday the 13th films, um, Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That was all about some maniacal man you know, hacking away at young, beautiful people. When I saw Reanimator, I I wasn't really aware that it was a Lovecraft story, even though it says in the title, H.P. Lovecraft's Reanimator. But uh, what Stuart Gordon did to Reanimator was he, he set it in that 80s uh, pocket of, um, that, that's kind of when uh, um, the Freddy Krueger movies came out. Um, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. So everything was kind of really vibrantly lit, if you think of it, in comparison to the 70s slasher films where it was kind of dark. Um, and that's why uh, when I was watching this thing, I was like, this thing is so in your face. You know, how how can this be happening? Um, and then also I found myself laughing many instances. You know, the comedy of... This guy's severed head isn't staying erect, so I'm going to grab the little, uh, what, is, what is that, uh, weighted thing with the spikes that yeah, you, you place your little post-it notes on it. And stuff. Yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, I'm going to use that thing, and then I'm going to, like, squash the head on it, and it'll stay erect. You know, just the comedy of that, and also the, the concept of, of this guy couldn't be using his voice because he has no lungs to pass across <laughs> his vocal cords. Like, how is he speaking? You know, um, so it, it was just very innovative. And what I felt was so successful about that film was capturing the obsession mm-hmm. of a young person on the verge of discovery. Um, and that's so Lovecraftian. You know? Yes. If, if this gets out and we can reanimate flesh <laughs> and no one has to die, what does that do? And also philosophically, like, if you can reanimate the flesh, but there's no way to actually capture the person's soul or that person's essence, then what's the point? You know, so th- those questions started to rise. Those are very Lovecraftian questions. Yes, and those, and and that's really at the core of the horror too, because yeah. it's that notion of. It, it's those layers of notions because it's like it's that godlike sensibility. Right. You know, Herbert West is the young student who, you know, discovers this reanimating fluid. So on a certain level, which comes out very much in the play, uh, in a beautiful song where it's like, I'm not God, but, uh-huh. it, you know, it, it turns into less, I'm God, I'm God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's that sense of, you know, man being able to be like a God. But then it's also this sense of here are these reanimated corpses and if they aren't themselves then what kind of a horror is that i mean if you get reanimated but you have no consciousness of who you were yeah and potentially there's point where somebody else controls these people like that's one of the most horrific things you yeah. can think of to you know kind of be alive and not yourself and right. so i mean those are all sorts of 
wonderful yeah. <laughs> areas to explore. When you become older in your life, you're able to like sort of see those elements and ponder them. And it's not just about pure like shock entertainment anymore. It was very interesting to revisit that movie mm-hmm. um, now um, and compare it to or try to d- figure out how I felt about it at 14. You know, this completely different eyes watching this thing. Well, yeah, because when it came out, I think what it got most attention for was being this gore fest. I mean, people talked about how much blood was in it. Yeah. uh, You know, I I don't remember what the rating was, if they even got it rated. But I remember there being some uproar about how violent and uh, gruesome it was. But, you know, when you watch it, there is a high level of humor also. Mm -hmm. And the humor is not that scream, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, look how funny we are. It's theater humor. Everything is very serious. I mean, everybody's taking their roles very seriously, and the humor comes from just how extreme and outlandish certain things are, and from Jeffrey Combs' brilliant, brilliant performance as Herbert West. Right, yeah, yeah, it it is. I mean, he he nails the obsession right on the head. You you get that right from the get-go, and he's creepy, you know? so good. And we have some brilliant lines from that film. Cat dead. Details later. Don't expect it to tango. It has a broken back. Let me go! That's it, my dearest man. More passion. I must say, Dr. Hill, I'm very disappointed in you. You steal the secret of life and death, and here you are, trysting with the bubble-headed co-ed. You're not even a second-rate scientist. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. There's brilliant lines in this. So if you only go see one currently existing H.P. Lovecraft film, yeah, make it Reanimator. Yeah. Well, the pickings are slim because you're not going to find much, you know, uh, there's lots of Lovecraft adjacent cinema right. out there. There aren't a whole lot of uh, adaptations out there, like direct adaptations. Right. Um, there's uh, there's uh, the Dunwich Horror. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that's from the '60s, uh, and there are others out there. Um, uh, th- this is a fantastic uh, adaptation, The Call of Cthulhu. I spoke yeah, about so it th- earlier. This is one of uh, – let's talk about some of your uh, – you've got five films that you've picked that we're going to discuss. And so why don't we start with the one, which is the direct adaptation of a of a Lovecraft story, which is The Call of Cthulhu. And, again, this is from the H.P. Lovecraft Society, which took – I remember seeing this at one of their film festivals and – it's a silent black and white film with amazing, meticulous like production design and and Super gorgeous black and white passion project all the way. Yeah, and the fact that this these guys made this for fifty thousand dollars in two thousand three and four, it's it's amazing. Talk yes. about maximum like results from minimal economy, but it's also that sort of like let's. Let's go for it. Let's see what happens. And then they're kind of like maniacally giggling all the way to the end. Um, and then what what results on screen is is magic and actually very very faithful to the uh, to the story, the source story, which was written in 1926. It's an earlier Lovecraft story. What I love about it is the 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 strategy used. Let's treat it like uh, Hollywood did produce this film in 1926. 
and what would it feel like, what would it look like, and uh, it was unearthed and discovered, and here it is. You can finally see it. This, so it is made as if it was produced in 1926, of course with digital technology, but the, uh, the Cthulhu uh, creature in this film is a stop-motion uh, puppet. Um, it, it took hours, hour upon hour upon hour to capture the, the few seconds that you see the monster. Um, but uh, it was such a treat to, uh, to get cast in this in 2004 and uh, to have shot it where we shot it. It was um, the uh, Relay scenes. Relay is an island that rises from the sea and it's where Cthulhu's lair uh, has been. Um, that set was uh, in a friend's backyard in Pasadena. Um, but yeah, Call of Cthulhu, it's a short film. It's about 45, 50 minutes long. Just fantastic. Um, this used to be on uh, Netflix. Uh, now you can't see it there. I, I'm not sure where you can stream it. Um, but you can always go to the H.P. Uh, Lovecraft Historical Society website and pick up a copy. They're, they're self-distributed. They're, they've got DVDs. They're, they're on Amazon as well. It, it's a really fabulous product. And um, if you didn't know that it was made recently and you just saw a clip from it, you would genuinely believe that this was a film from the 20s. I mean, they've taken such care in terms of the visual quality, the the grain they kind of add, the kind of crackling you yeah. hear on the soundtrack. Exactly, and that sort of, uh, you know, the glow of yeah. like a celluloid being illuminated by a bulb. It's sort of like this yeah. pulsating glow throughout the film, and, uh, you know, that's mesmerizing, you know, that type of treatment. Now, this isn't the first time we've mentioned Cthulhu. Um, you know, I can assume that most people know who he or it, however you want to describe <laughs> it, is. Um, but g for people who may not be that familiar or who may have seen, you know, some images of it, in the what? Lovecraft story, <laughs> uh, describe a little bit about how this character is presented. Yeah, he's presented in sort of legend. Um, no one has seen this this mythos figure, I don't think Cthulhu is male or female. I think it's just this this beast entity that's at under the under the sea, basically, um, who's one of uh, Lovecraft's uh, probably the most recognizable mythos uh, character. Um, but basically, he's uh, trapped in a lair at the bottom of the sea on the island of Relay, um, and once released, it's the end of the world. Um, and what's interesting about uh, Lovecraft is, you know, a lot of people say he's uh, original and visionary. He, he took from folklore from around the world. Um, the god of the sea uh, in Hawaii, I grew up in Hawaii, is Kanaloa. And Kanaloa, Cthulhu, maybe there's a sort of, maybe Lovecraft is making a, a little wink towards that. This Cthulhu lives uh, underneath the South Pacific uh, so there could be something there. But yeah, uh, if, if I'm to describe Cthulhu's appearance, it's a gargantuan s sort of beast with small dragon wings and a tentacly face. And uh, if you just Google Cthulhu, if you can even spell <laughs> that, C-T-H-U-L-H-U, uh, you'll see a lot of superb yeah. fan art out there of, of this creature. The poster for this silent film, The Call of Cthulhu, by Lee Moyer, I think is the artist uh, just fantastic. Yeah. Now let's move from 
a direct adaptation to this documentary you mentioned earlier, Lovecraft, Fear of the Unknown. Right. Produced, uh, released 2008 by Frank Woodard. Um, it's a wonderful documentary. If you really want to get into the bits mm-hmm. and bobs uh, underneath uh, who Lovecraft was, uh, a, a greater um, uh, and more and clearer uh, concept of, of when he lived and how he lived and what his uh, conditions were and his works. Uh, it's, it's a fabulous documentary, about an hour and a half long. Um, they, there's uh, interviews with Guillermo del Toro, John Carpenter, um, uh, some, some contemporary writers who are fans. Um, I'm going to butcher his last name, Neil Gaiman. He even actually sort of just uh, um, from, from a request uh, sort of dictates uh, Lovecraftian dialogue um, as if he's picking it right out of thin air. And I'm like, how do you do that? Like, it sounds like Lovecraft. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's really fantastic. Um, it's not necessarily a, an adaptation of any of his mm-hmm. works, but uh, it's such a great presentation of, of him. Um, and uh, and if, if, if you're a fan of Lovecraft content, uh, try to dedicate an hour and a half to watch that. It's on YouTube. You can watch it uh, at no cost. You'll have to watch some ads. <laughs> But it's there, and uh, it's it's phenomenal. And before we get to kind of the meteor of the uh, films you've picked, let's go to another short, which is yeah. AM twelve hundred. AM twelve hundred, same year two thousand eight, uh, made by David Pryor. Um, David Pryor uh, is uh, a jack of all trades. I never met the guy, but I'm really uh, inspired by him. Someone who grew up in Hollywood. He's the great grandson of silent film actor John Gilbert. Hmm. Um, who had an affair with Greta Garbo way back when during the studio system. Um, and then, unfortunately, he, John Gilbert became an alcoholic and died uh, when silent movies transitioned to talkies. Yeah. So anyway, Dave, back to David Pryor. He's the great-grandson of this silent film actor. Um, he, he, this was his pr- passion project, clearly. Mm-hmm. AM 1200, it's a short film, uh, a little, probably 40 minutes long. Mm-hmm. And it's got Ray Wise in it. Um, Twin Peaks. Bunch of horse shit. Yeah, yeah, Harry. All this happy horse shit. Yeah. I'm not gonna cry for him. You should. He's us. (laughs) Not me. Yeah, well, you didn't hear it from me, my friend, but even money says you're next. And it really, it is not an adaptation of of a Lovecraft story directly. But it is truly Lovecraftian in that it's about how obsession and a, a, a man's own guilt from having done something wrong can actually consume him. And you, this, this protagonist character creates his own beast. That's how I see this film, through an act that he does. He's a financial guy. Um, who who does something uh, you know very wrong and one of his contemporaries commits suicide because of it. So he he goes on this desert trip to try and escape his own guilt. And what he's faced with is a manifestation of his guilt at this radio station in the middle of the woods. What's going on? Transmissions. <laughs> we summoned it. God, it summoned us. I don't know. 
I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. I didn't choose. Is there someone else in here? Kinetic pressure. <laughs> we transmit, it receives. It transmits, we receive. Beast Impressa. Beast Impressa, you see, I didn't want to do it. Do what? I didn't want to do any of it. Oh God, we summoned it. What are you talking about? We summoned it. Is it my fault? Oh God, is it my now, fault? Whose car is outside? Is it yours? <laughs> you don't want to go outside. Well, stop it! The car, the keys. I'd rip you apart before you got 10 feet out the door. So it's, it's, it's a fabulous film. Um, and uh, David Pryor does a knockout job. I, I won't say that I was directly inspired to pursue the rock opera because of having seen this. But knowing that this guy assembled all his collaborators and found the funding and, and delivered this passion project... Um, at the quality level that it's at, certainly gave me the confidence to move forward uh, with the concept album for Dreams in the Witch House um, because uh, just the, the result of this film, AM 1200, it's something to ponder this movie for sure. Like what is that at the end? What does mm -hmm. that mean? I love films like that. And I think mm -hmm. that's a lot of what Lovecraft does do is that the yeah. endings are not very conclusive to no. his stories. You're always left with some sort of hanging question. Yeah. Fill in this big blank yourself. <laughs> I know it takes work to do that, but that's what I'm going to leave you with. He's Lovecraft's a master at that. And I, I don't know if that's intentional. I don't know if that's like I'm going to do this for my readers or if it's just like I'm kind of out of steam on this story. So I've set the table and you go ahead and eat the meal yourself. I'm going to go over here and work some more. You know, <laughs> it's uh, AM 1200. Check it out, everybody. All right. And then kind of your top two, not direct adaptations, but Lovecraftian films yeah. are Alien and John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about those. Yeah. Um, Hard to talk a little bit about those. I'm such a nerd about those. And I, you add a movie like Alien, which Dad took me to in 79 when I was eight. Um, it's just such a rich film. Um, just visually, it, it elevated the horror genre, in a sense, into art. It, it is a true art film. It's gorgeous to look at. Um, but again, why is it Lovecraftian? The, the people that wrote the screenplay, Dan O'Bannon, Ron, Ronald Shusett, um, Dan O'Bannon is clearly a Lovecraft fan. I met his widow at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival in San Pedro. So he's, he's a passionate filmmaker. Um, if if you're, the listeners out there don't know who Dan O'Bannon is, uh, he came up in that whole USC class with John Carpenter, Dark Star, uh, that film they worked on together. Um, and so Alien was kind of uh, f fell after Dark Star. Um, in terms of Dan O'Bannon's, uh, you know, his passion project. 
Um, and the fact that it was it was it went from B horror movie to Ridley Scott is attached, and now it's this art film with uh, Giger involved. Um, it's just a, that's that's an example of what can happen if you're in Hollywood and you just grind it out. Like good things can happen. Um, but what is specifically Lovecraftian about Alien itself? It's again the indifference of elements in the cosmos in the universe that are outside of the flesh of man man like so is the xenophobe what is the xenophobe the xenophobe is stardust basically and it has such an indifference towards the people on that uh that deep space mining ship with (laughs) um with yafet koto and uh sigourney weaver and uh, uh all these great actors so it really to me it feels Almost like a Dreams in the Witch House, they're, they're, the ship is their witch house, and the xenophobe is Brown Jenkin, this creature that lurks in the dark. Um, Brown Jenkin is a, a witch's familiar in Dreams in the Witch House, who picks off some of the residents of the witch house. So I see elements of Dreams in the Witch House in uh, Alien. Dallas, you're going to have to hold your position for a minute. I... I've lost the signal. You sure? Look, look around. Are you sure that it's not there? I mean, it's got to be around there somewhere. Check that out, Lambert. You may be getting interference. Dallas, are you sure there is no sign of it? I mean, it is there. It's got to be around there. Dallas? Am I, am I Claire Lambert? I want to get the hell out of here. Oh, God. It's moving right towards you. Uh. Move. Get out of there. Move. Dad. Move, Dad. Move, Dad. Get out. There's a chestburster scene in Alien that is probably uh, the the most well-known scene from that movie. Um, when John Hurt is dining with his crewmates and all of a sudden he's sucking up his spaghetti noodle and then this creature emerges from his chest. In Dreams in the Witch House, the climactic moment is when Walter Gilman is in his bed and a rat-like thing emerges from his chest because it's dimensionally traveled from another world into his chest cavity and eaten its way out. So a, very, a, a lot of Lovecraft and Alien. And then, of course, the alien creature itself is part of that fear of the unknown and right. this cosmic sensibility. And Yeah. 
and a little Cthulhu-like in being. Yeah, that's true. Kind of. Yeah, yeah. I I never thought of it that way. Like this 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 odd concoction of of organic elements um, that has this this thirst for I don't know. It, is it? Do we ever know? If, does the alien consume its victims? You know, it, it's never revealed. It's it's not like the alien is looking for food. Yeah, it's just kind of indifferent. It's like you're you're here, and I don't want you here, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we I, I love Aliens, the the sequel, but mm-hmm. Alien Three, again, the, the, just what has happened from the birth of this 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 movie, Alien. Uh, even its uh, its its sequels feel Lovecraftian. Alien Three feels very Lovecraftian. Um, in, in, again, the indifference towards all of those um, Y chromosome prisoners on that. What is the name of the planet? Fury. Um, it's probably been a while since you saw Alien yeah. Three. That's that's David Fincher as well. Right. His very first movie. Um, but it's it's just fascinating what uh, when when a concept. Is is thrown into the flesh of the screenwriter Dan O'Bannon. You can see a connective tissue to later sequels mm-hmm. through this this creature, um, and it's and it's how it perceives mankind. You know, I don't care about you. That's very Lovecraftian. Yeah. Same thing with the thing. We're just going to go right into it, Beth. If that's fine. Um, again, uh, kind of a fusion of At the Mountains of Madness with Lovecraftian elements. Uh, Arctic. Uh, I, I can't recall if it's Antarctica or if it's the Arctic. It's one of the two. Um, but anyway, there there are these men uh, at this uh, weather station or something uh, stu- doing studies, and they uncover this uh, this alien derelict ship that's under the ice. And once they defrost <laughs> the an element from the ship, uh, it organically starts to take them over, much like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, but that that concept as well is is, is extremely Lovecraftian. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. You guys gonna listen to Gary? He can beat one of those things! So, again, uh, you've got Alien, which has connect- connections to Dreams in the Witch House, The Thing connections to At the Mountains of Madness. I really feel like Dan O'Bannon, John Carpenter, the people who made, you know, either wrote the screenplay or wrote the screenplay and directed the movie, they, they're inspired by Lovecraft. So how could they not have Lovecraftian elements in what they do? Um, but I'm surprised that neither of these guys 
actually were able to convince a Hollywood studio to, hey, let's let's make a big budget version of this. Um, it, yeah, I mean, it seems like that's a hard thing for anyone to do because didn't Guillermo del Toro have a Lovecraft project for a while? Yeah, monster project, and you would think <laughs> that that is going to happen because James Cameron was producing. Okay, so there's your other big name behind it. Um, it was at the Mountains of Madness, and this mm-hmm. was prior to Prometheus, which is connected to Alien. Um, and so Guillermo del Toro, del Toro was going to direct, and he was doing creature developments for it already. Right. There was a not far down from the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society's old warehouse, there was a, a shop called Spectral, and they do creature uh, development. Um, and so... Guillermo <laughs> popped into the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society a couple of times, and he'd drop off his buddy because he had secret meetings over at Spectral. So, and I was doing shipping receiving in the back. This is a great story, Beth. You'll love this. <laughs> I'm there with my tape gun, you know. I'm, I'm sending out, uh, you know, Dark Adventure Radio Theater. That's a, a brand of uh, uh, radio theater adaptations of these stories that the Lovecraft Historical Society has done. Shipping those things, uh, Miskatonic hoodies, you know, all these things. I'm packing them up. And all of a sudden I hear our back door go. And I see this head pop through and it's this bearded face and he's got a sandwich. And there's lettuce in his beard and it's Guillermo (laughs) del Toro. And he's like, oh, hello, excuse me. Uh, I have my friend here from Mexico, uh, but I have a meeting over at Spectral. Can I leave him? You know? (laughs) And this guy walks in and like, yeah, hey, come on in. And he doesn't speak very much English. But as soon as he walks into the Lovecraft Historical Society, he's like, ah, because clearly this guy has been to Guillermo's house. Mm-hmm. So he gets it. Oh, one of these places. So this this mystery friend would hang out with me and Andrew Lehman and Sean Branny as we're doing our, you know, our little uh, Lovecraftian minion work um, at, while Guillermo was over at Spectral. Um, and so that's that's my encounter with Guillermo during that process of developing mm-hmm. at the Mountains of Madness. Um, and uh, I, I had every like everything in my uh, my knowledge of Hollywood was like, yeah, that's going to happen because they signed Tom Cruise as well. Like, how could that not get done? <laughs> Produced by James Cameron, starring Tom Cruise, a universal picture. It didn't get done because Guillermo's vision required it to be rated R at a $200 million budget. Mm-hmm. And the suits at Universal just didn't see that as a, that that wasn't the formula they wanted. They wanted something probably around $100 million, <laughs> you know? like And PG-13. And PG-13, exactly. So it, it fell through and Guillermo went over, uh, went off and did his uh, kaiju movies, mm-hmm. you know, instead, Pacific Rim. Um, so yeah, but you know, I'm sure Guillermo's sad. Like he's probably licking his wounds because the next thing, um, that the next news that came out was Ridley Scott's Prometheus had, Guillermo had seen a screening of that and was like, great, that's the movie I wanted to make. It's rated R and it's $200 million and it's, it takes place in an icy planet with mountains, you know? So clearly, uh, at the mountains of madness is squashed for good. Um, but, uh, this is all just, just part of sort of the fabric of Lovecraft's sort of almost, but it didn't happen. 
but something is happening. I don't want to leave it on a negative. You know, clearly there's we're we're here talking about him on yeah. the cusp of his birthday, so the, he, there is an importance to to his works and himself, uh, even through the controversy of of was he racist or not. Um, you know, I'm me being a person of color. I'm not really interested in that question. You know, he's a guy who lived during his time. That we're at a different time now. We can, we can, we can make the world better now. You can't make it different from what he experienced back then. Mm-hmm. That's that's my view on on that. All right. Well, what would you like us to go out with? Can you pick a piece <laughs> of music for us to end on? Yeah. Well, it's not really a piece of music, okay. but more than like a fusion of prose poetry by Lovecraft. And a, a great collaborator that I've been working with, Douglas Blair, who's the lead guitarist of Wasp. Um, we took his 1922 story fragment, which is basically Lovecraft probably was like sleeping and he was like, he had this dream. and was like, I got to write that down. So it's a fragment of something that he never finished. Mm-hmm. But uh, we talked about Barbara Steele mm-hmm. earlier in the show. Um, she gave voice to this figure of this nuclear chaos at the center of the universe. Uh, and that character's name is Azathoth. This story fragment is called Azathoth, written in 1922. And Doug and I recently released this at Comic-Con a few weeks ago um, as a uh, spoken word um, sort of parallel um, expansion product to the rock opera lineage of products that people can buy now. So that's my long-winded introduction to Azathoth 1922 featuring myself, Mike Dallager, reading Lovecraft's prose poetry and Douglas Blair on a fantastic uh, dynamic guitar. All right. We will go out with that. And thank you very much for talking with me about Lovecraft. Thanks for uh, hanging in there with me, Beth. It's uh, clear that when you talk about Lovecraft, it's, it's very, very difficult to keep it short. <laughs> Because just layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. Go out and read some Lovecraft, everybody. Uh, get, get through those layers, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. When age fell upon the world, and wonder went out of the minds of men. When gray cities reared to smoky skies, tall towers grim and ugly, in whose shadow none might dream of the sun or of spring's flowering meads. When learning stripped earth of her mantle of beauty, and poets sang no more save of twisted phantoms seen with bleared and inward-looking eyes. When these things had come to pass and childish hopes had gone away forever, there was a man who traveled out of life on a quest into the spaces whither the world's dreams had fled. Of the name and abode of this man but little is written, for they were of the waking world only. Yet it is said that both were obscure. It is enough to know that he dwelt in a city of high walls where sterile twilight reigned, and that he toiled all day among shadow and turmoil, coming home at evening to a room whose one window opened not on the fields and groves, but on a dim court where other windows stared in dull despair. 
From that casement one might see only walls and windows, except sometimes when one leaned far out and peered aloft at the small stars that passed. And because mere walls and windows must soon drive to madness a man who dreams and reads much, the dweller in that room used night after night to lean out and peer aloft to glimpse some fragment of things beyond the waking world and the grayness of tall cities. After years, he began to call the slow-sailing stars by name and to follow them in fancy when they glided regretfully out of sight till at length his vision opened to many secret vistas whose existence no common eye suspects. And one night, a mighty gulf was bridged, and the dream-haunted skies swelled down to the lonely watcher's window to merge with the close air of his room and make him a part of their fabulous wonder. Thanks for listening to another edition of KPBS Cinema Junkie Podcast. The podcast comes out every other Friday. Coming up next will be an episode about adapting Shakespeare to both the screen and, yes, even to the stage, because directors reinvent his plays and reimagine them in new settings and time periods. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. dust of gold, vortices of dust and fire swirling out of the ultimate spaces and heavy with perfumes from beyond the worlds. Opiate oceans poured there, litten by suns that the eye may never behold, and having in their whirlpools strange dolphins and sea nymphs of unrememberable deeps. Noiseless infinity eddied around the dreamer and wafted him away without even touching the body that leans stiffly from the lonely window. 
And for days not counted in men's calendars, the tides of far spheres bore him gently to join the dreams for which he longed, the dreams that men have lost. And in the course of many cycles, they tenderly left him sleeping on a green sunrise shore, a green shore fragrant with lotus blossoms and starred by red camelodies. As a thought by H.P. Lovecraft. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.